As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your grace that you have lavished upon us. And we pray, Father, for your help in this time that we have together, Lord. Would you be glorified in the proclamation of your word and the reception of your word, Lord, that we would receive it, that we would embrace it, Father. You are good and what you do is good and so we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law and incline our hearts toward it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, in this section of Luke's gospel, here we are at the end. Jesus is risen from the dead. We've been looking at this for the past few weeks. And most recently, we saw that he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus and spoke with them from the scriptures all of the things concerning himself. And we also know that at this point, he has revealed himself, appeared to the apostle Peter. Now, those three, the two that were on the way to Emmaus and Peter, are gathered together with other apostles and other disciples in a room. It tells us that. And they're celebrating, as you can imagine, the resurrection, probably a very worshipful time. In fact, we know from the previous text that when the two disciples came to the door to tell the other disciples the things that they had seen, and in particular that they had seen Jesus alive, they were met with this proclamation from them. The Lord is risen indeed. So this is what is being proclaimed. And at this point, the two disciples from Emmaus are retelling their circumstances on the road. How they encountered Jesus and how he had taught them and how their hearts burned within them. And how their eyes were open to see him and they knew and then he vanished. And while that's taking place in the midst of all of the joy that must be going on in that room... We learn that Jesus appears. And we learn in the midst of what happens something very valuable for ourselves about the human condition. That even in the highest moments, our faith is weak. But the joy of that news is that our salvation is not dependent on our own strength. Not on our own faith, not on our own own obedience. But on the strength of Jesus, on the strength of his faith, on the strength of his obedience. And so we see in the text they're talking together about these things. And Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. So while they're talking, while they're rejoicing about Jesus himself being alive, he appears 
amazing thing. In fact, John's gospel tells us in chapter 20, verse 19, that the doors of the room were locked and closed. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus appears among this group of disciples, apparently so overjoyed that they have, at least some of them have seen him and are worshiping the fact that he really is alive and Jesus appears. And John tells us they were in the room, certainly joyful, but at the same time, fearful. They were afraid. If Jewish leaders had killed Jesus, then what would keep them from coming after his followers as well? So they're hiding. They're afraid. But Jesus isn't dead. They have nothing to fear. And he appears before them. You might remember from the previous text that he had vanished from the two disciples in Emmaus, sitting at the table. He Speaking with them, he breaks bread. Their eyes are opened. They know who he is, and he's gone, vanishes. And now they see him appear in this room. What what would overcome you in that moment? The joy of discussing Jesus is alive. He's no longer dead. Peter has seen him. He lives indeed. These two disciples are, are retelling the story of how they've seen Jesus alive. How will these disciples now respond as Jesus appears with them again? Joy? Relief? Jesus says something to them when he appears. Peace to you. On this circumstance, we can't simply say this is just a greeting because it comes from Jesus. Jesus has just purchased this peace for them. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, not just horizontally, but vertically. He has torn down the dividing wall between us and God the Father. He is our peace. He alone can give peace. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all, All understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself appears and says, peace, peace to you. And how do they respond? Look at what happens, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. These disciples are struggling with doubt. It's... it's, Not at all surprising that they were startled, right? I think uh, any human being would be startled if you were in a room and the doors were locked and you were fearful that someone might come in and someone just appeared. Uh, It doesn't matter who that person was, right? Uh, You're going to be startled. So that makes sense. But being frightened... Because they thought they saw a spirit is harder to explain. It's difficult a little bit to understand in the context of what is taking place. But it gives us hope. It gives me hope. 
We are broken people. And there's no apostle or disciple of Jesus who is an exception to that. We doubt. We struggle with doubts. The song that we often sing, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Jesus is the only person in that room then and in this room now with perfect faith. The only one. He is their peace and he is their perfection in that room. He remained faithful on their behalf and he remained faithful on our behalf. He is our peace and our perfection. They've just been proclaiming the Lord is risen indeed and here he appears before them and immediately there's doubts in their heart and in their mind whether he's a spirit or not. And what does Jesus do? He openly addresses their doubts. Now this is wonderful and hopeful for us. He doesn't ignore them. He addresses them. He he calls them out. Look what it says. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He knows Why do you doubt? Maybe you resonate with these disciples. You attend a worship service like this and you sing songs and you hear God's word read. And your heart, yes, yes, yes. And then and then you leave and and maybe you're not even Maybe you're not even home yet. Maybe you're still in the car on the way home and doubts begin to arise in your heart. Maybe you resonate with these disciples. Jesus addresses, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? And the reason he addresses it is because Jesus wants them to believe and know that he is alive. And he wants that for me and he wants that for you. The hope that Jesus gives these disciples is that he's alive bodily. It's really me. That's so we could summarize how he responds. Look, it's really me, risen from the dead. See my hands, see my feet. He's inviting them to see the marks of his suffering so that they would know that this really is the Jesus they were with and the one they saw die. This is not a a different Jesus. Invites them to come and, and touch his body so that they know that his body has been raised from the dead and glorified. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. This is the one they know. This is the one they love. This is the one they've left everything to follow. Jesus is saying, it's me. You can trust in me. It's important. It, it's important for us. It's important for them to know that Christ is raised. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, right? As he begins 1 Corinthians 15, he's telling, I'm, I'm reminding you, brothers, of the gospel. You consider the Corinthians there. Those in Corinth were struggling with doubts about the hope that the resurrection brings to us. And Paul's addressing that, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man also has come also the resurrection of the dead. As Jesus appears and assures these doubting disciples, what he's saying to them is similar to what Paul is saying. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then they have every reason to doubt. They have nothing to live for. They have no hope. They have nothing to preach. They have nothing to believe in. But Christ appears and then assures them, I am alive. And therefore, because Christ is risen from the dead, they and we do have hope. Our faith isn't in vain. We have a truth, a gospel to proclaim. It makes sense for people to go to Japan. Because there's a message, there's a hope to be proclaimed. Look, touch, see. And yet we see in verse 41, they still struggle. But it adds this time, verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Hope is building. It seems like faith is being restored in them. As Jesus is speaking and they're with them. They're marveling. It seems like something is happening again. They're trusting. They're in awe. Not knowing likely what to think. So joyful. Probably almost like a, this is too good to be true, right? How can this be? Our Lord, we saw him dead and he's alive. And yet we notice from the next sentence that there's still doubts because Jesus continues in his encouragement. Have you anything to eat? Jesus is not hungry, right? He's not distracted by hunger and saying, well, that doesn't really matter. Do you have food? <laughs> I'm starving. No, no, he's, he's, he's seeking to give more assurance for him to take food and to eat the food before them will help them to see this is, this is Jesus alive. He's, he's not a ghost. The food doesn't go into his mouth and fall to the ground. It's consumed, just as a body is supposed to do. And his body being more perfect than any. He wants them to know that he's alive and he wants them to believe in him. So eating would show that. that He's not a ghost. He's he's there with them. He is alive, risen from the dead. 
And that's what we see throughout this text. Jesus is assuring them and he's assuring us, you can know, you can believe that I am alive. I'm no longer dead. There's no need to doubt. This room is likely filled with people who struggle with doubt. Because we all do. There's all, for all of us, days and seasons and hours of our life that are spent in doubt. And Jesus cares about our doubts. And so this text brings hope for us. How does Jesus address the doubts of the disciples and how can we grow and learn from the way that he addresses them? I would give us two things from what we learn just here from Jesus. First, Jesus wants his disciples to look at him. And secondly, he wants his disciples to listen to him. Jesus wants his disciples to look at him. When we begin to doubt, our faith is weak. We're stumbling in our thoughts and in our heart. We have no hope at all unless we look to the author and perfecter of our faith. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Whenever doubts arise... I must set my gaze on Jesus. Because if I'm looking at myself and some supposed strength that I might have in mind or heart, I'm getting nowhere because it's just not there. I'm utterly dependent on Jesus, on what he accomplished, on how he began this faith in me and how he will continue it in me to the end. That it's all him. He deserves all glory. And so we as a people who love Christ need to look to the only one who never doubted. He never doubted his father. He never doubted God. He was faithful even unto death on our behalf. When Paul tells us that Christ's righteousness is counted to us or credited to us, it's, it's put in our account. Part of that righteousness is his faithfulness, that he didn't doubt. There was no point in his life where he wondered, is this true? Is this for real? Will this sacrifice accomplish what it's supposed to? At no point, at no point does he doubt. And that's counted to me. It's counted to you. Those who are in Christ, that's a part of his righteousness. And therefore we must look to him. And even trust that his faithfulness is sufficient even when we are faithless. How do we do that? How do we look to Jesus? He didn't and doesn't just appear in rooms with us like he does here in the text. 
So what do we do? How do we look? How do we gaze? Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The way that we look to Jesus and gaze upon him is through the word spoken to us, him. Former days previously, he spoke to the prophets, but he's spoken to us by his son, and it's written down. And just as we learned a week ago, Jesus shows to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he shows us that all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament are about him. It's all about him. All of it points to him. All of it is gospel. All of it is saying, look to Jesus as the only hope for you. So we look to the Word. We gaze at Jesus as we look to the Word. Jesus is saying to the disciples here, when you doubt, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at me and see. See that I'm alive. But we can't just look. We can't just read words. Jesus wants his disciples to look at him, but he wants his disciples to listen to him. The reality is that ultimately the cause of the doubts among these disciples and apostles is that they didn't believe what Jesus said in the first place. He had told them again and again, I'm going to be delivered up. I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And when he encounters the two on their way to Emmaus, he says to them, you are foolish and slow of heart to believe all that has been spoken to you. You just, you didn't listen. You didn't embrace the words that were spoken. And if they had, they would have expected There would have been amazement. There would have been the joy. There would have been marveling, but not unbelief. They would have expected. Jesus is saying, stop doubting and look at the evidence. Touch and see. Look at the evidence of the resurrection. See that I'm alive. And consider the implications of that. What does it mean that Jesus lives? What does it mean that that he's risen from the dead? Consider what that means for us, that you're going to be restored one day, better than ever. You'll be more human than you've ever been. You'll be perfect. You'll be holy. You'll never doubt again. Jesus says, look and listen, believe. That's really the message of 1 Corinthians 15. As Paul starts proclaiming the gospel. I'm, I'm reminding you of the gospel that Jesus suffered and died and was raised from the dead and he appeared as a proof to hundreds of people. And that does something. As he gets into verse 12, that does something. It means that what we're believing is not in vain and, and all of the ways that we're denying ourselves and living for him are hopeful 
We don't have to doubt those because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. As we read Paul's words, there's an assumption that we're going to be changed by a belief in the resurrection. Our doubts will be addressed as we listen to God's word. It tells us how Jesus was raised. It tells us the hope that comes to us. And that ought to encourage us. It ought to encourage our hearts, not just personally, but as the body of Christ toward one another. Jude writes in verse 22 of his short letter, have mercy on those who doubt. We all experience it. We all know what it's like to struggle and to doubt. Have mercy on those who do. Point them to Christ. Help them to see him and help them to believe Jesus is alive. We're in a season of Christmas. It's hard to believe. It's barely a week and a half away. And the reality that God came as flesh and dwelt among us brings us joy. Joy. You go into stores and hear this music raining down over you and turn the radio on in your car and Christmas music's on the radio. We don't sing songs like Doubt to the World, right? (laughs) Silent Despair, (laughs) right? We don't hear those songs. It's just, we we, we just something about Christmas. We just know there's something joyful about this. The reason the songs are hopeful in their words is because the message is hopeful. Christ came to us to take away our sins and redeem us forever. That's a joyful, hope-filled message. And Jesus' desire is that we, his disciples, would remember the truth of the gospel. And in remembering the truth of the gospel, we would have hope and not doubt that we would believe with all of our hearts Christ is risen from the dead. Maybe you're here today and you've struggled with doubts about who Jesus is and what he came to do. I would say to you with certainty, just from looking at this text, Jesus wants you to believe. He wants you to trust in him. He came to this earth and lived a sinless life and yet was treated as a criminal, as a sinner. He did that for you. He willingly took punishment that he did not deserve, that we deserve, punishment for our sins because we can't save ourselves. Jesus came because we're so sinful that we needed to be rescued, but he's so loving that he did it willingly, not reluctantly. He died for our sins, and God the Father raised him from the dead, vindicating him. A promise to us that we would live again if we trust in Christ. And so I would encourage you, if you're here this morning and you would like to pray with someone as we sing in just a moment, go to the prayer room. It's in the back of the lobby. The Crandalls will be there. They would love to talk to you, to pray with you. We're going to go into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. I think another means of fighting doubt in our hearts while believing the words of Jesus is through the Lord's Supper. 
If you consider what we do each and every time we take the bread and the cup, we're proclaiming the truths that our flesh struggle to believe. That's always a good thing. It's always a good thing when we proclaim the gospel truth that we need to our wandering hearts. And what Paul says is that when we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming, even visually, by taking the bread and taking the cup, we believe that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed and that he's coming again. And therefore, we're proclaiming he lives. And not just that, Jesus says that when we take the bread and we take the cup, we're remembering his sacrifice. We're remembering what he did. That's always a good thing when we're embracing the truths of the gospel, when we're speaking them and proclaiming them even to our doubting hearts. And so let's prepare to do that, to proclaim and embrace the gospel even as we fight doubts that arise in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, you're good and what you do is good. And that is most clearly displayed in your son Jesus coming to this earth. Perfect, sinless, holy, righteous, set apart, deserving all praise, all honor, all glory, and yet treated as a criminal. Treated as if he had committed every sin that we have ever or ever will commit. Not just by men, but by you. The punishment for our transgressions was laid on him, Lord. I pray that you would help us even as we prepare to take the bread and the cup to remember truly to embrace truly the gospel message. And even as we partake to proclaim with joy, we believe, we believe, we believe that you have made it possible for us to be forgiven. And would you be glorified in this time that we take together. In Christ's name, amen.